This is the Embrace the Messy podcast. I'm Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find my inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my own experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. I know I teach humanities and drama, but in high school, I really loved math. And one of my favorite teachers was one of my math teachers, and his name was Mr. Ireland. He was a fair, laid back, he was supportive and kind, and you could tell that he not only loved teaching, but he loved his students. He told corny jokes and always came to the drama productions I was in, so he was really supportive. I'm pretty sure he actually did a cameo in one of them, if I recall. He also rode a motorcycle, and there was just something about being a kid in high school watching this math guy walk into the school in a leather jacket and boots, carrying his bike helmet in one hand and a briefcase in the other. None of my friends, at least I can't recall, said it out loud, but I think we all thought there was something kind of cool about our math teacher being a biker. I can't remember the exact year. I think it was in grade 9 or grade 10, Mr. Ireland actually hired me to input marks for him. I'm not kidding. Because I liked using the computer and I was a proud teacher's pet, I jumped at the opportunity to stay after school and make a little money. I'm sure he could have done this work himself. And to be fair, I'm not sure he was supposed to hire a student to do this work. But I wasn't complaining. I was a typical teenager. I needed money for typical things like going to movies and buying makeup and hanging out with friends at McDonald's. You know what I mean. And this teacher, he was willing to trust this teenager to put marks on the computer for him. I remember I screwed up a lot, especially at first. But... Mr. Ireland was really patient, and he always stayed close by at a desk doing his marking and prepping for the next day's classes. And eventually, I got really good at this job, especially thanks to his guidance. Years later, when I became a teacher, I actually got to teach at my former high school. And that meant I got to teach alongside many of my former teachers, including Mr. Ireland. I had to learn, first of all, how to call him by his first name, John, which is always so awkward at first. And he and I would sit in the staff room at lunch and joke about how I used to input marks for him. And he told me, he says, you know, it really just saved me so much time by because I did all the computer work for him. And that way he could go out riding on his bike and then he could go home and be with his family. And that's something when I was a kid, i didn't really know or understand. In 2013, as I sat in a church at John's memorial, I reflected that I really wish I had told him how much he meant to me. He was a pretty good math teacher for sure, because, you know, we students got pretty good at math each year. When I became an adult, I realized he was also just a really special person. He demanded respect, but he never flaunted his power. He always said hello to students in the hallways and asked about our lives. 
he wasn't the most popular teacher at school, but he was well-liked. He connected with his students and he encouraged them to take risks. I feel very grateful that he was my teacher, my boss, and my friend. My friend, Phil Stringer, is another educator making an impact on his students. Phil has been a teacher for more than 25 years and currently teaches math at an independent school in Vancouver, British Columbia. He has found that investing time in understanding how students think can have a lasting, positive impact, not just on their scores, but how they communicate with one another and how he connects with them. I hope you enjoy my interview with my friend, Phil Stringer. Welcome to the Embrace the Messy podcast, Phil. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're able to be here. So just so listeners know, so Phil and I go back about three and a half years. Yeah, during COVID, I think, yep. is when we found there was a mutual connection um, with some other like-minded assessment savvy individuals, uh, you know, a mutual, you know, affinity for, for sound assessments. But I, I got to say this, just before we get into this interview, I just wanted to express my gratitude to you. You're just, you're a really great human being. Like <laughs> you oh, really you. are like I've, I've done a lot through things like, you know, Twitter and blog and beyond report cards and things like that. And I can always count on you. You're always, you know, my blogs are really, really long and you always read them. And, you know, if I'm in a panic mode with a thread on Twitter, I can, you know, shoot you a text and uh, you're so great to be able to do that. And I'm so glad we've actually been able to meet and chat in person uh, a couple of times in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always uh, it's always been a great time, um, and likewise, thank you, Shannon, for you know pushing me and bouncing all those questions back and forth and trying to figure things out. All right, so I have a particular fascination with origin stories, and even though I've known you for about three and a half years, I don't actually know your beginnings about like you know why did you decide to go into education and why math. Um. Okay, well, let's take it back to maybe grade 10, grade 11. Um, I, I had always been what good at math and teachers had recognized that. My peers had recognized that. I even remember being in, gosh, grade nine and uh, my, my buddy Carrie and I would uh, zip through the homework in class as soon as we got to class before the teacher had really even got down to teaching us anything we she'd always put the homework up on on the board and he and I would just blast through it and our high school let us um we had a a interesting um schedule where we could leave class whenever we wanted um given teacher permission there were always students in the hallways um it was called a flex mod system it was a lot like being in a, a small university setting and so I would uh, finish my homework and the teacher would take in our homework while we were in class and, and put it up on the board or, or um, up onto the like pegboard and uh, other students could use it as like a, a answer key. And so, and then Carrie and I could leave and sometimes we'd leave the entire school and just go hang out at its house. Anyway, the other students recognized um, I was pretty good at many of the kind of mathy subjects. And so um, they would come and ask me lots of questions. And I 
I'm pretty patient. So I would help them out and they, they appreciated it. So when we got to grade 11 and we um, started looking at career options and universities and things like that, I remember doing one of the, gosh, back in the day, it was career, career ed or career and personal planning, I think it was called. And we did a survey online or no, gosh, it would have not been online. It would have been by paper, survey on paper, uh, which of these career paths might fit you best. And uh, mine came back with three that were very, very, very high. I, I clearly remember 99%, uh, 97, 97. And, and 99% was uh, an educator as a teacher. Yeah, what um, were, I got to ask, what were the other two? Uh, the other two, I think I had ticked off somewhere that I like to work individually quite a bit and I like to be outside. Um, so at 97%, I had uh, garbage man. Um, who knows? That's uh, a noble I, role. It, it is a it noble is. role, Absolutely. right? Like we need Absolutely. people in all in all sorts of different kinds of roles. And what was number three? Totally. Um, uh, a spy. Yeah. Working for CSIS. <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, wow. Uh, so it's like a little, Mission Impossible side, kind yeah, of. Yeah, totally. You know? <laughs> and a little, a little side story. After I graduated uh, with a math degree and before I had gone into education, I actually applied to CSIS. Um, and uh, just because I had always remembered that um, that survey back in grade 11. And I thought, okay, well, maybe. And so, yeah, uh, off I went. Um, it, and I got a rejection that letter. That yeah. so interesting. That, well, that's I, so I, I had taken some cryptography courses and I thought, you know, an undergrad in math with some cryptography would be, you know, good enough to be a code breaker. And clearly I was wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, I ended up going through uh, university and directly into teaching. It was, um, you know, not quite so messy as a lot of other people's paths into education for me. And so I was doing my practicum by the time I was 22, 23, um, and into teaching the year after that. So um, yeah, it was, it was, I don't know, pretty linear for me. Um, I, I, at the same time, I really enjoyed writing. Uh, not so much reading, not so much other aspects of English. And, and I was reasonably successful at that. And so when I went through university, um, I took just enough courses to not have to do a second major in English. Um, and uh, UBC don't give out minors or didn't give out minors. So, but I do have a, I do have a double teaching degree in mathematics and English. Okay, um, see, I didn't I didn't know the English part to part, right? Because that's that's me, right? That's mm -hmm. when I went to UNBC, that was my major was English and it was called a concentration in history, right? Which is like right. like like having a minor. So did you ever actually teach did you teach English? Um yes, I I've taught English 11 uh what else? Uh some creative writing summer classes so uh, the first few years of actual teaching it was very difficult this is uh mid-90s it was very difficult to get a full-time job so mm -hmm. i ended up tocing quite a bit in north vancouver west vancouver and taught everything i remember my very first job was uh three weeks of teaching japanese uh, and it was not easy. I don't speak any Japanese. So I, I learned classroom management really, really, really quickly. And, and that year was just a real growth year 
teaching band. I don't read music. Uh, teaching career and personal planning, which is everyone's favorite subject, uh, especially with the TOC there. Uh, lots of PE classes and and just learned a lot, uh, a lot from lots of great teachers in, in North Van and West Van. And eventually, yeah. Do you think it's important, like when you kind of think about that, your career trajectory and the fact, mine was messy too, right? Um, I mean, I teach drama and drama was actually never the plan, right? Which, and I love it now, but even teaching courses that you're not teaching now, do you think that's an important process for other new teachers to actually go through, at least like, no, maybe not to some extent. I mean, cause I know now there is such a shortage of teachers um, in our province. Teachers are getting hired and they're not even done their final practicum. Right. And they're often getting exactly what they want because again, there is such a shortage. Like it mm-hmm. kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of like stories from my dad who was a teacher, mm-hmm. right? He's a retired teacher mm-hmm. now for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just kind of walk out and get a job. But do you think that's important to actually have that experience teaching some of those um, courses that maybe make the journey a little bit more messy? It, aside from practicum time when you can go observe a bunch of other teachers it may be the only other time if you toc for gosh it doesn't even need to be that long a year or a few months and then you know pick up a job in the second semester a full-time job or part-time job it's one of the only times you can get into a bunch of other classes and so i look back you know um on times teaching science or times teaching uh, computer science and draw on some of that. I'm a little bit lucky because in my current school, we do have internal coverage of other teachers' classes. And so, and plus, teachers generally have their doors open to one another. So I, I'm in and out of lots of different classes um, at my current role. Um, we We have obviously PE classes, and there's only a few teachers that are kind of qualified to be around a gym. And so because I coach and have taught PE before uh, that I am called often to do that kind of role as well. Is that part of the balance with, you know, teaching is, is hard. (laughs) It's, I mean, that's the podcast is called embrace the messy. Teaching is very messy. Is that part of the balance? The fact that, because you still coach, don't you? I do. I coach senior girls soccer at the school. uh, And it's, um, yeah, it, it's it's actually part of the job that I love the most. It's, yeah. um, you know, uh, some days when I'm coaching and we're doing really well and I'm seeing lots of improvements, I often say this is why I teach. So, All right. Do you want to talk about the brain? Um, sure. <laughs> let's, let's, sure. let's talk we about the brain. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about the brain. There's, that's a nice segue. So uh, um, Phil and I have a mutual love of learning how the brain works, how memory works and how learning, um, works. And I know uh, a couple of your favorite books is, uh, make it stick and powerful teaching. And I think, actually, I think both of them are, I think inspired by you to actually, for me to actually read. And then that just led me down, you know, the rabbit hole. I wanted to read, you know, Dan Pink's drive and I wanted to read, Oh God, Carol Dweck's mindset. And, and it's huge. And I find myself talking about the brain to my own students. Right. Um, 
So why is it important? Why do you think educators should learn about learning and the brain and memory and, and how does that impact your classes teaching math? And that was the big question that I had, like, what is it in math class that I think could be improved? And I had taught for more than 15 years um, and had come across the question over and over and over from other math educators. Oh, the kids always forget stuff. Why do they forget stuff? I know I taught it to them last semester or last year or back in grade eight. And here they are in my grade nine or 10 class. Why don't they still know how to do fractions or integers or, or you know, some of those fundamental skills? Or gosh, even from last week or two weeks ago, how, how come they're forgetting stuff? And I would hear from kids, you expect me to remember that? Like, I haven't done that in a year, two years, or if I'm teaching some of the senior classes and we're referring to something from grade eight or grade seven, they, and, and rightly so. If you haven't encountered something for four or five years and we expect you to remember it, it's very, very difficult. And so I did a little bit of a, um, a dive into this kind of neuroscience and how our brain works. And luckily at my school, we have, um, we have the ability to pitch extra prodi to uh, our admin and they choose a couple of teachers, give them some extra time and resource. And I pitched a, a deep dive through this Pro-D at my school to look into these kinds of questions in math ed. And I had just read as kind of a prelude to pitching this, and I actually had to sit down in front of admin and pitch it. You know, here's my three minute elevator speech as it were. I had just read Make It Stick by uh, Peter Brown, uh, Henry Rodiger, and Mark McDaniel, and um, it had blown me away. Um, lots of uh, things that I had thought for years and years and years, this is the way that your brain works, this is how you learn and remember, and I was wrong. Um, or, or, or collectively, we are wrong. This is what neuroscientists now think. And so I started to think about ways to redesign my curriculum. How do I include more um, mixed practice rather than just uh, rote um, kind of drill? How do I include more spaced practice so that the students see uh, the same content but kind of spaced out over the year? And how do I um, make them think about what problem solving technique they're going to use by uh, interleaving um, and, and making them choose which kind of path they're going to attack a question from. Much more like a real mathematician approaches a problem that they haven't seen before uh, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, uh, do a page of uh, I don't know, adding fractions. So uh, I pitched this, uh, I got this uh, extra time and um, like many things that I have thought about doing in the past, uh, I had to now put my money where my mouth was and implement some changes in my classroom, see how they went. And I had someone that I had to report to to do this. So uh, off I went. And um, I actually started with a grade eight class. I blew up my curriculum so that it was much more spiraled. Uh, so here are the foundations of all of the units. And I, I pitched it or called it deunitized mathematics. So uh, we're still covering all that same content, but I just um, spiraled through it. 
and um, the kids were lost. I was lost. It was super messy, but I had a goal. I knew where I wanted to go. And about halfway through the year, I started to see a lot more success. The students were um, definitely engaged through all of this. And I, I just started collecting data and stories. And uh, that was a year, this is prior to COVID. So that was a year that we had exams at the school. And uh, we, we had finished all of the grade curriculum. We had finished all of the content pieces by like April-ish. And mm -hmm. so I, I just was giving them additional kind of crazy questions to do that were still at grade level and really like pushing their thinking. And we did have a we did have an exam, so I remember giving them the exam package uh, that we had always given out to students uh, early May. And I said, you know, we'll do it later. Don't bother about it, but I'll, I'll give it to you. I'm sure you know it won't be too bad. And um, we do have this exam. And the kids came back after the weekend, and almost all of them had just finished the entire package, the entire re review package. And they were like, that's it. This is super easy. And I, I had never really got that response before because kids were like, I haven't done adding fractions forever. I haven't done this kind of algebra in, in such a long time. And that just wasn't true in my class. We had done it last week or, or last day. And so I, I really started to see this working. Um, and then, of course, they wrote the exam, and usually I have years of data that say usually a final exam goes down by about 4% to their class grade, and this group went up 4%. So that's an 8% swing up. And then I remeasured them in September against the other kids who hadn't gone through this sort of a program to see what they had forgotten over the summer, and those students out performed the kind of regular students by a significant margin, a See, statistically significant margin. And, and that's the data piece, right? Often we'll hear like, okay, you've got your experiences, but where's the data behind it? Whether or not it's like street data, whether it's like, you know, those conversations and those kinds of things. Um, and you've got that data and that how uh, you had that opportunity to be able to collect that. What about now that I mentioned street data, what about the conversations with the kids shifting the structure of the class? Um, what, yeah, was, what what was their response to to the change? Like, was there any pushback at the start or, you know, what well, was that like? Yeah. When I implement something new, generally, I want to do it with the grade eights. They're the first year they come into the high school with us and they don't know what math class should be like. So um, that'll definitely help minimize things. If I had tried to do such a complete shift with uh, AP Calculus or, or Pre-Calculus 12, I might've run into a lot more problems. That being said, um, I was first told that standard-based grading couldn't work. And uh, my first go at that was with AP Calculus. So um, yeah, you have to pick and choose your battles and, and yeah. kind of have confidence in yourself about what is it that I believe in and, and, you know, if I'm going to do one of these changes or, you know, forced to do one of these changes, um, where, where can I, um, where can I implement this? Some, some, some years I only teach senior courses. And so if I want to make a change, I have to make it in pre-calc 12 or 
um, AP statistics or something like that. So anyway, I had collected this data from the grade eight class and uh, it wasn't, um, it's not rigorous data because it's from one group of kids in one year with one teacher at my school in my school context. And so, you know, it's hard to publish that kind of data because it's not, um, it, it just won't pass a lot of the uh, data analysis techniques that you might need to use on it. But I, I thought I'd put it together as a poster presentation and, and see if I can present this somewhere. And so I, I did a little digging and there turns out there's a conference in uh, Boston every year uh, about neuroscience. And so uh, a year after I had done this, I was able to put the stuff together and say the summer slash September. And I proposed to the conference um, called Learning and the Brain that uh, might be worthwhile for me to be one of the poster present presenters there. And, and they accepted it. So off I went to Boston with a poster in my uh, backpack, <laughs> as it were. And um, I was pretty active on Twitter, now X, I guess. Um, yeah. And, and had had been chatting with Pooja Agarwal, who had just put out uh, Powerful Teaching. And she was gonna be at the conference because she was teaching in Boston and loved the conference. And um, because the book was so new, she was having a little bit of a book launch lunch if anybody wanted to meet up with her. And it was the day of the conference. Like, And so, yeah, no problem. I just said, I'll be there. And so I got off the plane, took a little tour of Boston, checked into my hotel and went straight to lunch to see, you know, how many thousands of people were going to be chatting with Pooja. And there were like two people. So I had lunch with Pooja and explained what I had been doing. And she was really interested and chatted with her for know, an hour or so. And then off we went to the afternoon sessions where the you know keynote was going to start, things like that. So uh they the conference was fantastic i had to put my poster up and um man it to be there to explain anything at, at certain times and and i had marked i'm definitely going to go see puja you know tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock and uh i had a poster presentation hour from nine till ten so okay i'm gonna have to figure out how to rush there and so enjoyed the conference uh first post presentation Hundreds of people were coming by. There were two or three thousand people at this conference. It's it's massive, and uh, just as ten o'clock is getting closer and people are off, and and many many people wanted to go see Pooja. It was uh, clearly going to be you know sold out, standing room only. Uh, I, I was starting to get packed up, but one guy was like lingering around, and I was kind of hoping he would leave so I could go off to Pooja's talk. And then um, he started asking questions about my poster and I was, okay, I better answer these. And so I went through and answered his questions and I, his name tag was flipped over. So I couldn't tell who he was. And then he shifted and his name tag flipped back and it was Mark McDaniel, one of the authors of Make It Stick. Oh my gosh. Who, yeah, who like had started me on this whole thing. So he gave me his card and we chatted for about another half hour. And I did you, you felt a little bit bad in your head that you wanted him to leave. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, for like, sure. Oh, I'm such yeah. a fan. And, and I felt bad because then I, I left him and yeah, huge fan promised him. I would go to his session later. And then I walked into Pooja. was kind of late and I think she probably saw me in the back sneaking in. And, um, but that, that, 
started a connection with Mark. And so I've been in contact with him for the last few years. He's been giving me ideas. Can I implement this in some other classes back and forth? Um, and so, so that's been fantastic and, you know, kept a connection with Pooja. Um, it, it led to being able to connect with people like Barbara Oakley. She has some, some great resources around these subjects and some good books. I think it's called uh, Learning How to Learn. She has a, like a Coursera course or an online course, okay. plus a book for teachers, a book for parents and students. Uh, it's another uh, another great um, resource in in this field. So and and um, listeners, I'll I'll make sure to put in the show notes all of these books and the authors and uh, so that you know exactly you know what books we're you know we're talking about so that you can you know either you know f- either fill your Amazon court cart or head to your your local your local book bookstore. I remember when we would talk about the brain and we were in, in a, on a Zoom call and I remember you telling me a story about a student. And again, it's a little foggy trying to remember the story, but you talk about brain science actually with your students because then that's what I was remembering. I know listeners can't see it, but you this is exactly what I wanted to, I wrote a little note here is that you, you would look at the kids and I know you listeners can't see this, but it's, you know, you got all your fingers and your thumbs touching, right? So it looks like a, a brain, right? It's supposed to look like a brain or is, so it'd be like those it's, connections in the brain. Yeah, the connections in your brain. And so, you know, in math, a lot of kids learn that there's, and I'm putting my fingertips together, my two fingertips together yeah. and uh, from each hand. And um, they learn there's one way of doing uh, a a question and so you know here's here's your one connection and your brain builds that connection and um and then if i put two fingers touching two fingers then you know there's two different connections and i just put all my fingers together with all my fingers when i was working with the students because one of the things that came out of the mixed approach is some sometimes especially later in the year the students don't know what unit we're working on they don't know what problem solving skill that they might use to solve a problem and so they just try stuff. Um, and in that trying, sometimes they come about the answer in a new or novel way to them or to the class. And so we look around the room. I, I use a lot of whiteboarding uh, in classes. And so we can look around the room and, and, okay, how did this group do it? You know, Can you explain to the class what you were doing? And they'll explain it and they used a graphical approach and you know they drew these pictures and then we'll go to another group and they're like, oh, we did the same thing, but we did it with an algebraic approach and this is what we did. Another group will say, oh yeah, we did it with algebra. We didn't do that kind of algebra. We defined our variables a little bit different. We'll go take a look at that approach. And that's three different pathways that they can get to the final answer. And I, and I said, look, the more pathways you have of getting to an answer, if you forget two or three of those pathways, you'll still be able to remember how to get to that answer and how to process your way through that thinking. So uh, it became our symbol, like, look around, we're all doing it a little bit differently and getting to the same place and that's okay. And if you forget some stuff and those things get paired away, because you wake up with it. I didn't know this until I went to Boston and listened to one of the neuroscientists. You wake up with a new brain every morning. So your brain gets rid of memories, consolidates things, and the actual brain you have every morning is a little bit different than the brain you went to bed with at night. So 
you're going to forget things. You're going to change some of the memories and strengthen some other things, depending on what you did during the day. It's, and it's the, kids, a, it's, the kids remember that. It's, it's, a, it's been a hot topic in education too, to talk about, you know, you and I both teach high school. And, you know, when we talk, think about like little kids, they're so curious, right? They have this curiosity. They'll try a whole bunch of things. They'll try and fail. And then they hit high school. They're not as curious about, about things. And so what I, I'm thinking about what you were just saying is the multiple, the fact that you open it up for the kids to find different ways to approach a problem when we're only teaching something, say, this is the only, the only way we can actually uh, you're going to do something or answer a question. We're actually limiting the pathways, right? And and I think you know is that reducing the curiosity, you know, that opportunity to be curious, like important to kind of either open up, either let them play, or also teach multiple ways so they have those multiple pathways, like for that that curiosity kind of. Piece. Yeah, and there's in addition to that, there's some neat exploration that happens where a student will attack a problem, find the solution, and then they'll look at a way another student did it and be like, oh, that's really cool and much more efficient than what I did. And they'll, they'll be curious about that efficiency piece. And I, I know many mathematicians, many math teachers will be like, let's just teach them the efficient way first. And I, I wonder about the amount of learning that goes on when they puzzle through something, see a little bit more of an efficient way, pull that in, you know, it rebuild some of their schema. So they might be ready for that additional learning. The next time they go do it, they might be like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, plot this graph piece by piece because I have this other tool that I can now use that'll allow me to graph this a little bit quicker. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, I think sometimes teachers are, you know, let's go show them the most efficient way right away, which turns out in the long run, maybe to not be the most efficient way of mm -hmm. teaching. Like teaching is messy. Learning is a little bit messy. We've got to allow their brains to construct things and then wait some time, rebuild their brain at yeah. night, all those kinds of things to, to have long-term learning. Because my goal isn't that they end a unit and ace a unit test and use that as evidence that they know their stuff. My goal is that I hear them in the next teacher's class or I hear them when they come back as alumni still being successful in mathematics, like longer term learning. I think that's that, that's so important. And, and I know it's hard for teachers to make this adjustment because if they were taught one way and then that actually was the way that they that connected with them then they're going into education and then they want to teach that one way because they're so excited about that one way right educators are so excited about the way they've learned it now it's kind of going back to the drawing board and that's it's kind of difficult for some educators and now and and speaking of also addressing difficulties right for um so Phil and I both teach in British Columbia and in British Columbia we've got these big changes with regards to assessment because you mentioned a little bit about assessment there and in, in what you were talking about and one of the comments that was made and I think it was on um, a recent episode of the Tom Shimmer podcast it was the idea we have this new BC reporting order and to kind of give listeners an idea 
because if you're not from BC, you might not understand the way our curriculum is is set up. We are we have a, a set of standards, but they're divided up between what are called curricular competencies and content. And the content is what you would already be familiar with. It's what students need to know. And competencies are more of the skill and process based. Um, it's what students are able to do. And well, once upon a time, you know, the idea was to drill, you know, really know the content. So then dapple in the curricular competencies to know the content. Now we're actually using content as the vehicle with the focus being more on the curricular competencies. Right. And, the, and, and that's a big that's a big shift it, it, for every subject area, not not just math, but really in particular math, because like I'm not a math person. Right. So when I have assessment conversations with math teachers, sometimes I'm like, you know, you know, tripping over my tongue, not quite sure how to how to address it. So how is that shift that, that because I think in a lot of other either provinces across Canada or, or places um, even in the United States, there is a there has been a bit a shift to this. Um, to some kind of a, a competency-based learning. How was that shift? How what's the adjustment you're trying to make and and work with your your other your math department um, with regards to the the new reporting order? Yeah, the nice part about the BC curriculum and mathematics is that the same four competency standards bridge grades eight to twelve, and um, those are reasoning and justifying as one. Uh, understanding and solving as a second, communicating as a third, and connecting and reflecting. And by connecting, it's like connecting to real life, but also connecting one area of mathematics to another area of mathematics, and then reflecting on your learning as, as the fourth um, big standard or big competency standard. And so uh, that, that is one thing that I noticed as I started doing more spiraling and more kind of blowing up the units, deunitizing in the courses is that you're always reasoning and justifying. It, it doesn't matter what the content piece is. And so tracking how a student is growing and reasoning and justifying over a year makes a lot more sense as you spiral through all of the material. The, the hesitation with having a unit is that if I give a unit where the student can make lots of connections and the student understands it really well, then their mark mark goes you know up accordingly their proficiencies are much higher in that area and then i can you know bang nail them with something much more difficult and it goes down if you're looking at you know trend over time they're going down whereas if you take that content and space it in the entire year then you can still identify that content is difficult for them but their reasoning and their justifying or their communication skills will grow throughout the year. They'll be given you know, multiple opportunities to revisit it. Again, let their brains develop and think about it over time. And I, I teach in a year-long system, which is you know also fantastic. And so I'm not squished down to a semester of learning. It's it's I've got every other day all year to slowly pace out. And so as we've been uh, thinking about standards-based grading, what are our standards? We started with competencies and content standards in our department. I, I alluded to when I first did this kind of by myself uh, with AP Statistics, I think I had 40 standards because I just broke the content down into a million mm -hmm. different pieces. Mm -hmm. And until you go through that and, and kind of the, 
reevaluate it, reflect on it, figure out that it's not working, what's not working. Okay, well, what if I went down to 20 standards? What if I went down to 10 standards? And, and now some of our math courses have four standards and those standards are the competencies, but it's taken years, right? It's taken time. It's taken working with other teachers in that, like, what is this going to look like? How can I assess it? What is the quiz going to look like now? You know, what is the day by day going to look like? Where are the unit tests? What if I did a project? What if I have a conversation with a kid? There are still lots and lots and lots of questions out there. Um, and, and having a team, that you can work with is just, it's so valuable or having someone you can bounce them off. And, and sometimes that's you know, people like you and you might not know the math as well, but I'm like, am I, you know, thinking in the right way of doing this piece or right. doing that, you know, is, would this make sense? Yeah, no, I think that, and I'm so glad you touched on the collaborative piece, right? Working with a team, cause that's, I think with any kind of um, curriculum overhaul, whether, you know, we're talking about assessment or, or whatever, it's important that we all get on the same place. And it, 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 at the same, we actually work together. Otherwise, you know, working in a silo, like you and I are very independent that way. And we're going to, we're go-getters. We're going to just dive right in and get messy. Right. But working with other educators, you know, it builds, you know, the, we can talk about the equity piece. Right. Because then we're all on the same page and then it doesn't matter. You know, everyone is going to be teaching it in their own way and with their own flair and their own passion behind it. But uh, a student can go into your class and go into another um, class um, and knowing that they're going to be assessed in the same way. Um, so I think that that's hugely, hugely important. You are so a hot topic. So switching gears just a little bit. Not, not too much, not too much, because it kind of, you know, thinking about assessment and, and thinking, uh, a real hot topic is, is hearing about what are called thinking classrooms in math, right? Peter Lillydahl's book um, called Building Thinking Classrooms. Anytime now I talk to an educator who teaches math, they're talking about Peter Lillydahl's book. I was really lucky that in my school, um, the, the math department bought the books for the department and so and I swiped a copy and, and read it and then again being not a math person I have to admit my eyes were kind of glazing over in spots but some of the assessment nuggets and just actually the structure of the thinking classroom like you already talked about how you're using whiteboards and you know and, and really the changing the structure of the classroom so I know you're a fan of Peter we've talked about him before so how has Peter's book supported your classroom and your assessment journey? We were implementing, uh, I, I'm kind of lucky because I know Peter um, because he's from BC and, um, and and he's got connections to my department. I've got other members of my department who have worked with him, done their masters with him, for instance, at SFU. And um, I, I've, I've worked with him in pro-D sessions and things like that over the years. So we were already implementing a number of the core aspects of the building thinking classroom book uh, prior to the book even coming out. So for instance, I had gone and said, you know, these are fantastic rooms that I have. There's lots of space and I'm well-resourced, but can I put more whiteboards in? Like, can I get rid of these cork boards and put whiteboards in not just my room, but like all the math classes. And I tell you, 
when my class is free, when any of the math classroom math classrooms are free now, they are automatically booked by anyone who's looking for a classroom to do work. Because having the whiteboards, the school invested and then put the whiteboards in on all the walls, the, the, the space is just so collaborative. And mm -hmm. so we had already been doing many of these things. When his book came out, I did the same thing. I picked up a copy for everybody. When I get new teachers into the department, I immediately hand them powerful thinking, uh, powerful teaching story and, and, uh, and Peter's book. Uh, in conjunction with this, the uh, English and social studies departments at my school have um, quite a bit of uh, background and, and resource in the Harkness method uh, coming out of Philip Exeter Academy in the States. Uh, we've had a number of teachers who are trained in those subject areas in Harkness and uh, being a bit of an English geek, I wondered what this was all about. And so I've also done some um, preliminary work on like could the Harkness method be used in mathematics? And it, it's very similar. It, it, it really puts the kid at the center. Um, I, you know, I'm still one giving them questions and, and uh, as Peter calls it, thin slicing, which is mm -hmm. just really just moving them ahead a little yeah. bit at a time as they can handle. Um, but the, the Harkness in English and in the humanities courses, and then they come down to math and they're kind of doing the same thing, except there's not a table, there's boards. So you've like flipped the positioning of the kids. Um, it's just supporting one another. They, they go to English class. Oh, this is like math class. They go to, and again, this is from grade eight and up. So they get used to this method. Um, they're being assessed in the same language at our school. It, it, it all pulls together together yeah, yeah so that um and, and nothing against peter's book i was just on a webinar yeah. about chapter 13 and 14 on assessment this week and <laughs> still learning and still questioning and, and wondering you know how people around uh around the world are doing with building thinking classroom because it has a lot of aspects to it it's not just about a vertical surface or mixed groups or mathematics there's a lot of things that peter's book has in it it is a fantastic resource for people. i I appreciate that you mentioned um, English, uh, the humanities, in that, you know, I, you know, of listening to Peter in a, a variety of different podcasts, you know, one of the things he talks about is, you know, it's not really good for kids to be always just, you know, sitting at a desk in rows, you know, writing notes, learning things just in one way. And again, as an English teacher, I'm really inspired by um, like Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher. And they are, they teach about, you know, the importance of reading and writing. And the kids, when they're actually moving around, working with each other, editing each other's work, and then just kind of doing it, it becomes almost organic. Then they kind of look up at the teacher and go, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to be, I'm just, I'm just helping this person, right? I don't mean to be up out of my chair, right? Because there's, it's been ingrained in them that they have to sit in the rows and do their work. And I'm just like, no, awesome. You don't have to tell me. I can, I can hear you. I got incredible hearing. I know that you're working on this. I want to encourage you to, to move around. So and that's what I gleaned from Peter's book is that even as an English teacher, there's so much I can take away from that, like getting kids mm -hmm. up on the whiteboards and, and, and getting them moving and, and being collaborative and, and having that become almost like, again, muscle memory, where it just becomes normalized, right? Instead of this is my work and I'm doing it on my own, you know, independently, 
and then that kind of thing. The, the collaboration I'm, aspect of standing at the whiteboards and, you know, working with other students, being able to look around and cheat off another group and, mm -hmm. you know, get a little bit of a hint on how did you do this and, and walk over it, it takes some time. And Peter's book is great for giving those kinds of hints. But I remember actually being, we, we used to have staff pro D called lunch and learns and anyone could pitch one and we do it for 20 minutes at lunch uh, in somebody's classroom. And we had a PE teacher just ask about, I think the title of the session was something like sitting is the next smoking. And it was really about wondering because they were a PE teacher and interested in you know getting the kids up and moving and, and learning through activity wondering about how many minutes or hours a student sat during the day and as I did some of the brain research and I can't find the off the top of my head I won't be able to find this for you but I remember reading something about your say 30 percent more creative when standing than when sitting um I, I'm now starting to see that, like you know, the kids are up and moving and the energy is just so different than a class. Now, are there still times for a kid to do some individual work? And are there still times for some, you know, some, some quiet and, you know, the kids are, are sitting or um, is sitting an easier place sometimes to have them listen? Sure. Um, for, for certain activities, but the energy and excitement that happens in a class where they're up and moving about and working on problems that are, you know, directed for them, created sometimes by them. Uh, it's just so empowering to the students. Yeah. You have mentioned um, a few times, um, you know, involving students in whatever you're learning. And uh, I know you and I were we're very fortunate to have been asked by Ken O'Connor to write uh, a vignette in his uh, third edition of a repair kit for grading, 15 fixes for broken grades. So I wrote a vignette, um, our mutual friend, uh, Josh Ogilvie wrote a vignette and there's a, a really interesting, really great um, Canadian voices and BC voices in there. And you focused on fix 11. So taking a bit of a turn getting a little more granular here and thinking about assessment. I know you've talked a little bit about standards-based grading about, you know, cons uh, your fix, so fix 11 is consider several measures of central tendency and use professional judgment. Don't rely on the mean. And I was really impressed by in your vignette, I think it was the first half, you had kind of like two parts to that vignette. You actually had students unpack the inherent problems with the mean or the averaging of scores by actually getting them to look at student scores and then have them determine the grade they believe shows what the student knows and can do. Can you elaborate a little bit on that on that story? Yeah, the, so, on your vignette? Yeah, I was teaching AP statistics and the AP exam happens in May, but our year doesn't end until middle end of June. And so you've got this month of time with statistics students um, where we need to still have them in class and try to keep them engaged. And sometimes it's, it's pretty difficult. So I, I think about activities that we can do that would be of high interest to them. And so this is grade 11, grade 12s, kind of 50-50. Uh, maybe about 16 students in a class. And, and I just said to them, 
what kinds of things would you be interested in looking at that's from data analysis and kicked around a few ideas and Standards-based grading was a little bit new to them. Um, they were still a little unsure how a teacher collects the data, uh, that being, in our case, by proficiency level, and looks at it over time per standard. So mm -hmm. they, I think, had maybe eight or ten standards for their course. For each standard, they have collected data, uh, been assessed that collects data for them, I guess, um, so it might say something like proficient, 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 extending, developing, proficient mm -hmm. in that order over time. And then how do you make a judgment as a teacher where they stand overall on that standard? And so I pulled data from a bunch of math classes and gave it to them. And so it wasn't their own data. They had experience with that themselves, obviously, all year. But I just pulled scrub, scrub names out and said, you know, these are 100 students in grade eight. Uh, this is the data for math classes. You can see there's this many standards. What would you give them for each standard? And, and they, they got in groups. They started to look at the median mode. Uh, recency is, you know, median of the most recent three things. The mode overall, like had really, really cool discussions about what they could go do with that data. And um, other groups broke into like, how many proficiency levels do you need given the number of standards that you have in a course to figure out whether or not there were gaps in marks. And, and by that, I mean, sometimes I hear teachers say, well, a student can get a 90 in your class this way and a student can get a 94 in your class this way. Can they get a 92? And whether or not that actually matters is, you know, one philosophy piece. But my students were diving into, if you have a certain number of standards that are worth, you know, this much each, and you have a certain number of proficiency levels that are going to translate over to percentages in this particular way. And we weren't using logic rules at the time. We were using like a, a weighted average, basically. What What's the problem? Like, you know, if you can't get any mark between 90 and, and you know, you can only get a 90 or a 100, is that a problem for students? And for some university students, obviously, that might be a problem. Mm -hmm. So they were, the groups who were diving into this and, and I had, I don't know, dangled a bit of a carrot of like, maybe we can even get published on some of this data, um, you know, together. And so they were interested. They were, you know, especially the grade 11s who were going to, see this the next year and maybe could have some impact and help teachers out and, and what they came up with was for our particular circumstance looking at the more recent uh three or four pieces of evidence and going with the median seemed to them to be the best and i said well what do you mean the best like we don't know what the teacher chose and and we got into a whole discussion about well yeah the teacher really does know the kid and the teacher does know the assignments they gave and the standard of quality of work that they were really looking for and whether or not there were any other mitigating circumstances that led to you know, this particular level that was given out. You can imagine a student you know, losing a grandparent and getting an emerging on the test the next week. And so they said, we, we as data scientists can't, you know, we can't adapt to that. And so they they published, they, they kind of gave me a final report and they said, median 
of the most recent three or four seems mathematically to be the best, but professional judgment would be the best. Like making a decision as a professional with your experiences of that student in that context based against the standards that you believe they should be getting. And when I say believe, collaboratively believe have right. set that is the level with your you know department or uh, faculty or um, province whatever it happens to be for you then you can go make that decision as long as it's also transparent to the student how that decision got made yeah yeah and I've you know I've I've written about this. I wrote a, a, a blog, a piece called The Love Language of Professional Judgment, and I've spoken about it. And I think the idea of professional judgment when it comes to standards-based grading, it's a, I think it is, I don't know if this is the correct language to use. It's kind of an easier sell for teachers who have been, who have a lot of experience because they can envision it. They've seen it prior. And then of course the collaborative piece, we have to be all on the same page. How do you coach, you know, new teachers who are shifting from a traditional assessment framework where, you know, everything's kind of chucked into a grade machine and the computer or the grade machine determines like an overall grade to them using their professional judgment when they haven't had that experience, when they, they can make that professional judgment? How do you, how do you coach them? Because I know you've, you know, you, we, you and I have talked about how you have had department an evolution like of, of different, having different uh, new, new staff members. Do you want to elaborate totally. on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, and there's two different pieces to that. There's new to the school and that, and that culture. So when you move schools, obviously there's a learning curve for the professional of how um, in this case, assessment works in that context. And there's like new to the profession teachers. So, but I think the, I mean, the experience piece is key. I loved actually marking provincial exams because of working collaboratively to set a key and then double marking stuff to make sure that we were on the same page before released to doing stuff ourselves. And so I think the, that leads right to the kind of most successful uh, groups that I have seen are people that incorporate that moderated marking. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning of the year, especially again with new to the school or new to teaching teachers, having time to um, talk about here's a piece of work. What do you think this is? Heck, I still do it. I, I don't know what this piece should be at. And so I just lean on another teacher in my department and say, what would you give the sometimes two other teachers? And just even one question on one quiz I'll, I'll take and be like, what would you give this? I think they were trying to do this or do that. And, um, and, and that's, you know, at four levels of, of, you know, extending, proficient, developing, emerging, like that's just using four levels. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I still can't make that decision. So yeah, having people to lean on doing organized, moderated marking, um in pro d time is it's huge i know we have some staff meetings and department meetings throughout the year and a few years ago one of my department members said hey can we just do some more math and so (laughs) someone brings a math problem uh like a problem of the week or I've, i've got one person in my department who's working on their masters right now and it's heavy math based so they'll bring math questions from their masters level and 
as we become students at the whiteboards and then we talk about our different approaches and sometimes we grade each other like whoa that's that Mike, that was amazing. That's an extending approach over there. And, um, you know, what were you trying to do over there? Um, you know, and somebody else is pulling out a computer and trying to use Desmos. And it just builds that capacity with everybody. I think I, I love this idea of, you know, almost walking in the shoes of the students, right? And kind of remember, you know, by actually, you know, addressing those problems in your, I don't know if you're, you're calling it a PLC or in your learning community, um, it, it kind of takes you back. And I think then we're, I think we become, I don't know if the word is humbled, maybe like where we kind of get to see this is what, what learning is like. Um, so it, it kind of brings us back and, and as, as teachers, remember what the students are also, are, are also going through, right? Um, I want to be really cognizant of your time, Phil. I know we could talk about collaboration and the brain and assessment for hours because I know we both love it. So I want to end our session uh, with what I call the elevator pitch. And uh, are you ready for this? Okay. You got to sure. be thinking yeah. about it. Okay. So, yeah. okay. So, um, so an, an educator gets on a, the elevator with you and tells you that they're in the thick of the messiness of trying to you know, develop and establish their math department as, as a learning community. And they're just, they're ready to give up, right? You only have three floors. So they're getting on the elevator, got three floors. You have to inspire them to embrace the messy. What do you tell them? This, this elevator on three floors better be stopping at each floor because no, I was just it's in not. an elevator. That's why this I, is going to be quick. This I was in an elevator <laughs> you, the other You take day. as we much time as you want. You, I am not... <laughs> I am not policing this. I was in an elevator the other day taking my son to an appointment <laughs> and we went up 18 floors in like one second. The thing was super high speed. <laughs> so um, I, look, here's the three things. Um, I think number one, find those like-minded colleagues because you're gonna have to lean on some people and they might be in your own school outside of your department and they might be somewhere else in the world, but find those people because you're gonna need some people to lean on because it can be tough. It can be tough at times. Uh, number two, when you have something that you wanna implement in your own classroom or if you're a department head or admin and you want to implement it in your school or department you you have to lead by doing by lead by example so any change that i have wanted to put into practice in my department or in my schools i have been the one to do it first um, which means i'm taking risks in front of a lot of people um, and so be okay, to make those, be okay with those mistakes, have that growth mindset. Um, and, you know, when someone gives you some advice of, hey, you could fix it by doing this, try that out too. And then number three, um, however you do it, build some resilience. And so going to school uh, is sometimes tough if you're like I want this to be perfect I want it to be done this year we're going to make all these changes school can be really difficult with all sorts of commitments that you have and there were days uh, in my career where I'm like I'm going to school today for the kids that I'm coaching soccer at <laughs> after school <Yeah. laughs> and, and like 
that I'm going to be resilient all day. I'm going to have as much fun as I can because these other tough things are going on with uh, these implementations that I'm trying to do. But soccer is going to be rocket after school, and you yeah. know we're going to we're going to win the game or have a great practice or whatever yeah. it is. So you find those small highlights and yeah. and celebrate those pieces. Mm. I, I don't know. As you're leaving the door, I'm going to be yelling something like, um, and and make small goals. Yeah, and make small goals. <laughs> small because goals. Baby steps. It, yeah, have the big thing you know as a five year plan, and yes. then you know yes. how do you break that down so you get some manageable things. Yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. That's so insightful. Phil, you're just a great guy. I just, I could talk to you. Like, this is so fun. I'm so happy. (laughs) I'm so happy. Great way to start the day, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast. This podcast was produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Tene First Nation. I feel truly blessed to be able to live, work, and play here. I'd love to hear from all of my listeners. If you are inspired by someone who embraces the messy and would like me to interview them on the podcast, or you have feedback about an episode, send me an email at embracethemessypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. This is Shannon Schinkel signing off, reminding you to embrace the messy. Bye.